Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week we hear from Myanmar as it gears up for historic elections. There is a massive groundswell throughout the country and you can feel it everywhere. And from the US, where President Obama's landmark healthcare reforms could be reversed by the Supreme Court. There are some people that are saying perhaps it would be a good thing for him because it would help him help Democrats galvanize themselves against the Supreme Court. First to Myanmar, or Burma as some still call it. This weekend sees the first by-elections since the country's military junta began to loosen its grip on power and to allow a little more space for political freedom. Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Prize-winning leader of the country's democracy movement, has been on the campaign trail, and watching her was the FT's Gwen Robinson. It can only be described as euphoric. Everywhere she goes, there's sort of cheering crowds. You've, you've probably seen the, the images and read the news. They're literally people waiting hours to see her, and I'd say the atmosphere is extremely exuberant. The hopes are so high that it's almost unimaginable that there'd be uh, any widespread fraud. So give us some context. I mean, these are quite small elections. They're by-elections being held for the parliament, yeah? That's right. You could say that very rarely in history has there been so much international attention on basically a a small by-election for 48 parliamentary seats. That's 48 seats in a total of about 1,160 seats combined, which is two houses of national parliament and about 14 regional chambers. Those 48 seats were vacated by sitting MPs who most of them uh, joined the government in one way or another after uh, it came to power last year. And they've been vacant for nearly a year. And they are scattered throughout the country, which is why we've seen Aung San Suu Kyi and her NLD party campaigning throughout the country. These seats are far and wide. And last weekend, she even went to one of the southernmost spots of Myanmar, a very remote area, and visited outlying islands, which is where she fell ill. Yeah, you were there on that rally. Does she seem frail? I mean, she's 66 years old now, yeah? That's right, which I, I wouldn't say is actually old, old. We'd like to think it wasn't that old. And uh, there are many sprightly 66-year-olds. And in fact, she is an extremely, extremely strong and strong-spirited woman who apparently takes extremely good care of herself and has always had uh, tremendous levels of energy. However, one problem for her is she does suffer from motion sickness and apparently hates flying. And that particular trip involved boats, airplanes, long road trips, She's had the most gruelling schedule imaginable, trying to get all through the country to all 47 seats that her party's contesting. I was not actually at the rally. She fell ill. I was there with her a few days before that in a place just outside Yangon, about an hour's drive called Dagon Port. And there I had a real feel for the fanaticism on the part of the people and the expectations on her. It is bakingly hot at the moment.
continent in Myanmar, extremely hot, which I'm sure hasn't helped her. These crowds will sit there for eight hours or longer if necessary, just waiting for a small appearance from her. On that day, she took the stage and typically belted out a speech that was sort of big on broad brush, broad brush calls for democracy and urging people to join her struggle. Very short on detail or, or any actual policy. People don't care. They just want to see her. I interviewed quite a few in the crowd, including farmers and a young monk, actually. A lot of monks turning up to her campaign rallies, which is interesting because monks cannot vote. They all say the same thing, which is they love her. She's like a mother. Hence, they call her Dorsu. Dor is an honorific term, more like mother. She gives them hope for the future of the country. I think when you talk to slightly more urban professionals, young students, there's a, a slightly more considered view, but still there's a, a vast base of admiration. It's very hard to find critics. I have seen some more cautious voters. I would say it's almost impossible to find an undecided voter. People seem largely either pro-NLD or in the ethnic areas, actual ethnic candidates are playing very strong. Some don't support the NLD, which is Suchi's party. But uh, on the whole, there there is a massive groundswell throughout the country and you can feel it everywhere. You can see on the streets of Yangon, there are posters of her everywhere, key rings, t-shirts. You've probably seen images of that. It is overwhelming and it's very hard to consider that even one year ago or definitely two years ago, people would be scared of being arrested for trying to sell an Aung San Suu Kyi poster. Her name could not appear in any complimentary terms in any press. And now it's just a completely different universe as far as I can see. So you can see, obviously, the huge hopes invested in her. But as we were saying earlier, it's a small number of seats up for grabs now. So I guess the question is, how far are the military rulers of the country prepared actually to go further to see power and to to allow a real democracy to take root? That's a very good question. I mean, definitely the hopes are so huge that one worries that there's nowhere to go but down. I mean, these hordes of farmers, dirt poor people living in little villages, believing that they will have a better life because she's she goes to Parliament. It's going to take a long time for that sort of community to see the benefits of Aung San Suu Kyi and her party entering the political process. As you pointed out, even if they won every seat, which is highly, uh, almost impossible and most pundits think they could win two-thirds, a half to two-thirds of those uh, 47 seats. Well, actually, it's 44, given that they've cancelled uh, or postponed, rather, elections in northern uh, Kachin state. So given all that, she could easily, even if she won every seat, there'll just be a drop in the ocean in Parliament. However, what is interesting is that in its uh, short life, the Parliament only began mid-last year, it's had three sessions, but it has already proven to be far more independent and influential than people ever expected. They have been drafting bills and they have a system of committees and there's opposite, there are a handful of opposition MPs already in Parliament, none with Aung San Suu Kyi's party because they boycotted the last election. These opposition MPs have been able to even block the passage of certain bills. They've had huge input in through the committee process into the drafting of bills. There's a lot of speculation that Suu Kyi will maybe specialise in something like like education or anti-corruption. She could be on a couple of committees. It will give her a voice in Parliament. She will be addressing all the MPs, including military, in the Parliament. And that is a huge start. And I think it really signifies her move from political icon to full-fledged politician. As you said, it is very much up to the government to stick to the reform process. But I think with her in Parliament with a voice, even if there were some minor backsliding, she will be able to send out a message and possibly exert some influence that way. 
So far, all the indications uh, from the utterances and even the actions of President Tain Sein would suggest that he is very anxious to stay on the reform path. They are not stupid. They are doing this partly to bring Burma, uh, Myanmar in from the cold, and they've been promised the lifting of Western sanctions. So they know very well that any backsliding will obviously sort of impact on them negatively as far as the sanctions process and the international community's relationship with Myanmar goes. So I would be willing to bet that at least for the foreseeable future, the reforms would stay on track. Thank you very much, Gwen. And now to the United States, where the Supreme Court's been holding hearings on a case brought by 26 states claiming that President Obama's health care reforms, which seek to extend coverage to every citizen of America, are in fact unconstitutional. The FT's Alan Rappaport is in Washington, D.C., and watched the early arguments in the case. So, Alan, what is the nub of the argument being made by the people who want to see this law struck down? The nub of the case against the law is that the U.S. government has overreached by requiring or making a mandate that every U.S. citizen purchase health insurance or pay a penalty. The challengers to the law are saying that this is an overreach because it's the first time in history, I guess, that people are being required to purchase something by the federal government. The government is saying that they have the rights to do this under the Constitution's Commerce Clause, which says that the government has the ability to regulate economic activity that affects interstate commerce. And they're saying that the insurance market is an important example of this because the problem of uninsurance insurance prices or premiums to go up for other people in the United States. So they're saying that they have the rights to do this and it's become a debate about whether or not the state can regulate economic activity or economic inactivity, which is the act of not buying something. Just briefly remind us of the scale of the problem I and mean, how many people currently are uninsured and would be compelled under this legislation to buy insurance? So they estimate that between 30 and 40 million people are currently uninsured. And I mean, the healthcare market right now, they estimate to be about 18 to 20 percent of the U.S. economy in terms of healthcare spending. So it's quite a big chunk. In terms of government estimates, the mandate is um, projected to compel about 60 to uh, 66 percent of the people who are currently uninsured to buy insurance. And the rest would face a penalty, which could be between six and $700 per year. Right. And looking at the early days of this argument, well, early, they only had three days, and now I gather they're going to go off and think about it for a while. But it, it sounded from the reports written by yourself and others as if the court is splitting on fairly predictable ideological lines with the judges appointed by Republicans looking more sceptical of the law and the judges appointed by Democrats looking more favourable. How do you think it, were you able to pick up from the arguments any sense of how they're going to come down in the end? Well, I think that's right. I mean, I think to the law is the fact that this would open up a Pandora's box, that the federal government, if they're able to regulate health care, they could then compel U.S. citizens to eat broccoli or to buy cars if the car market is struggling. And I think that going into the case, there was the sense that there was no way this would be struck down because it would be so historic for the court to strike down such a significant law. People say it hasn't happened since 1936 with the original New Deal legislation. And I think that there was some surprise with the vigorousness of the questioning by the conservative judges. Um, and the fact that they so effectively, you know, picked apart some aspects of this mandate. I mean, I think a lot of the people that I've spoken to who thought that they were definitely going to uphold the law are at least more on the fence now or thinking that they actually might be struck down. And the swing vote is, I, I gather, Justice Anthony Kennedy, and he sounded pretty sceptical, didn't he? Yeah, people are quite focused on what he was saying, as well as John Roberts, the Chief Justice, but especially Justice Kennedy, um, some of his remarks towards the U.S. Solicitor General saying you know, that there was a huge burden of proof on the U.S., 
to prove that this is constitutional and that it would impose a fundamental change in the relationship between the individual and the federal government definitely raised some eyebrows that he might be leaning in one direction. But he did also ask tough questions of the other side as well, and he's known for not deciding these kinds of questions going into the opening arguments. He actually does sort of mull these things over and is probably debating it with himself as well. Now, the judges will report, I gather, well before the presidential election votes in November. Let's say they do strike it down. How big a blow is that to President Obama, both in terms of his legacy and in terms of the re-election? I think obviously it would be quite significant to President Obama. I mean, he staked the first half of his presidency on this. It was pushed through very aggressively, and he's defended it vigorously over the you know the first two years of his administration. So I think that you know it would be extremely difficult. He would have to come up with some contingency plans. I think the U.S. administration is already thinking about what they would do in the event that this was struck down. There are some people that are saying you know perhaps it would be a good thing for him because it would help him help Democrats galvanize themselves against the Supreme Court. You mean Democrat voters would be so outraged that they'd turn out in greater numbers? Exactly, exactly. They would be they would be quite energized by this. Uh, I mean, they're already the Obama administration has been talking about sort of running against Congress. Now they'd be running against the court. <laughs> I guess one thing to consider is that, and this is what was discussed in the third day of, of the hearings, is how it could be struck down because they discussed the issue of severability. If they strike down the mandate, will other parts of the law remain? And that's what they've been debating. So if they struck down the mandate, insurance companies then would not have to cover most likely people with pre-existing conditions from the price regulations would also be swept away. But there's the chance that some of the other positive things in the law, such as the insurance exchanges or other limitations on the insurers, might still continue to live on. Okay, Alan, so we have a big verdict to look forward to in June, I gather. Yeah, end of June, uh, just before the uh, presidential convention season starts to heat up and the election really uh, gets going. Okay. Thank you very much, Alan. And that's it for this week. My thanks also to Gwen Robinson in Bangkok and to the team here in London. Until next week... Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.